Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And this is the Josh Marshall Podcast with Kate Riga. Today, we have uh, one breaking news story that broke this morning a little while before we started recording. And just to place us in time, we're recording on Wednesday, December 13th, uh, always a Wednesday, uh, just after the noon hour. And we have two stories we're going to start out with, both turning on abortion. One of those is is that a breaking news story that I just mentioned. So my co-host, Kate Riga, this is this is her beat here at TPM, Reproductive Rights. So Kate, let, let's just go right to this. What happened? What is this? Tell us what happened this morning at the Supreme Court and why does it matter? So the Supreme Court agreed to take up the biggest abortion case, I mean, the only abortion case that they'll hear since Dobbs, which centers on mifepristone, um, one of the drugs used to induce abortions. And it was expected that they would take it up. The government asked them to, uh, one of the manufacturers asked them to. This is a case that our listeners will remember started at Matthew Kaczmarek's court, where he revoked the FDA's original approval of mifepristone from 20 plus years ago, and then also would kind of um, bat down all the restrictions that the, the agency has lifted since then. That decision, it was a really big one. He had tried to keep the, you know, the hearings under wraps so the press couldn't come. We broke a story. We were the first to report out, you know, the transcript of that call with the lawyers where he was saying he was going to keep it off the public docket. So then that wasn't his rationale there like to kind of because people would be be mean to him or mean to the litigants or something like that, which is just not exactly not something you can do. Right. Um, And then the case went to a Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals panel, which like grudgingly said, "Okay, we can't agree with him on, you know, suspending or revoking the FDA's original authorization because in a pesky turn of events, uh, there's a six year statute of limitations to challenge those approvals. And that happened back in 2001. So that ship has sailed. However, the Fifth Circuit panel was happily acquiescent to reimposing these restrictions that the agency has lifted since 2016. And that encompasses things as far ranging as, you know, being able to use it for a a larger gestational window, um, and then kind of a lot of logistical stuff that's made it easier to get, like not requiring people to go in for multiple in-person visits anymore, letting the pills be mailed, which, by the way, all of these restrictions, which the FDA has been complicit in, stem from the anti-abortion movement. And they're 
peddling of this idea that mifeprostone is dangerous and that there are a ton of risks and that women, you know, get admitted in floods to the emergency room because of all these concerns. When in reality, it's incredibly safe. Major medical organizations have said this forever. You know, it's, it's more dangerous to get a wisdom tooth removed. So, but finally, the FDA is kind of has been catching up to where the major medical organizations have been. And the Biden administration in 2021 kind of pushed that even further by letting certain pharmacies dispense it, not just healthcare providers, because that gets you into this whole world of, you know, for a lot of people, mifepristone would only be available at a Planned Parenthood clinic because abortion has already been so siloed off from kind of mainstream healthcare. So the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals panel would kind of send us back to the pre-2016 where these pills were hard to get, where it was a pain in the ass. You have to like go in a million times. And then that's the point at which uh, the government and the drug manufacturers stepped in and asked the Supreme Court to you know, look at that decision, which is where we are now. The court said today they are going to look at it. We expected this. And the kind of glimmer of really good news in their announcement that they'll take up the case is that they rejected as part of it this cross petition from the anti-abortion doctors who brought the lawsuit in the first place, who were asking the court to go back to what Katz Merrick said and look at that initial authorization again. And the court said, no, we're not taking up that question. So that's good because that kind of eliminates the possibility that mifepristone will be yanked off the market entirely. There is a little bit more of a gray area around the generic form of mifepristone versus the branded form. But by rejecting that and taking up these other questions, it kind of seems like the court is going to be more focused on the procedural irregularities of this case versus kind of the substance of whether or not to keep mifepristone accessible. And the procedural irregularities have been glaring from the beginning. Like there's not a lot of evidence that these anti-abortion doctors had standing to bring this lawsuit in the first place. Their injuries were all pretty hypothetical. You know, they would say, well, some of us are emergency room doctors and there's a chance that if a woman has an adverse effect to mifepristone because FDA didn't do its job in testing the safety efficacy, that I'll be forced to treat her. That'll take resources away from my other patients and I might be sued for malpractice, which is just like not how standing works. You don't get to make up claims like this. And you also have the fact that for the past 20 years, mifepristone has been distributed and taken quite frequently. And we have not seen parades of women kind of brought bleeding into emergency rooms. So you've got that piece. And then the other piece deal with issues of kind of timeliness and exhaustion. The question of whether they brought these challenges through the agency channel first before you move them into federal court, um, whether they challenged the restrict or the lifting of restrictions quickly enough at the time. Because clearly, you know, the group that brought the lawsuit was created in Amarillo specifically to give them grounds to bring it to Casmeric. And it happened right after Dobbs. So this is just it's so clearly kind of an effort to take advantage of the new landscape and this really amenable judge that it's creating all these downstream questions of, well, when you file a lawsuit, you're supposed to kind of tick certain boxes before you come to us. And it's really unclear that you have. And I also think it kind of makes sense that the Supreme Court might want to only focus on these questions of standing and these other procedural things because they have seen, like the rest of us have, the electoral potency of Dobbs, and that has worked against their ideological preferences. So it's not hard to imagine that when they take this case up this spring, 
with the 2024 election so soon, they might not want to drop another huge bomb onto the playing field right before people go to the polls. So that might incentivize them to kind of say, well, you guys don't have standing. So this case is moot and we don't really have to deal with any of the the substantive issues and, and you know, just keep me for Pristone available kind of status quo for now. So for, for those of our listeners who are not currently women of, of childbearing age, give us a sense of how widespread the use of these drugs have become over the last 20 years or so since they've been on the market. Yeah, I mean, hugely widespread. They're the go-to method of ending a pregnancy in the first trimester, which is when the the vast majority of abortions are done. You can still get a surgical abortion, but I mean, the kind of benefits of the pills, especially since you've been able to get them mailed, you know, you just take two pills in your own home. Most common side effects are, you know, cramping and, and some bleeding and that's it. You know, then you're you're kind of done. Um, it's cheaper. You don't have to you know, try to get yourself an appointment at a Planned Parenthood clinic, which in some parts of the country, even before Dobbs, was basically impossible. So super, super common and has completely changed the abortion landscape, which is why it's become such a hot button thing for the anti-abortion movement to go after now, both in the legal and illegal markets, you know, as much as it's kind of the preferred choice for women getting, you know, uncomplicated abortions that don't have anything to do with kind of these big, intense uh, medical necessities, which usually come along much later in the pregnancy. But you've got that piece. And then on the illegal market, there have been all these systems set up that involve, you know, mail forwarding or, you know, kind of fake addresses where you can get the pills over telehealth and then maybe get them mailed to an address in a state that has abortion rights and then get them forwarded on from there to you in whatever red state you you live in where it's banned. So it's really created a whole landscape that is makes abortion so much harder to end in a way that you couldn't really have imagined um, in the in the pre-row world where abortions were, you know, scary and dangerous and had really high um, mortality rates. So that in practice, if you are if, if you are a, a 30 year old woman in Texas who becomes pregnant, you know, an unplanned pregnancy, the fact that there's no in most cases, the fact that there's no clinic in your area or in your state doesn't necessarily matter if you can get this mailed to you. And so, as as you say, that that a lot of the, uh, well, l- let me let me let me back up. And you, you mentioned before this kind of gray area, legal gray area, where these drugs can be mailed. Can you walk us through that and what the Biden administration has has done? in that gray area or to clarify that gray. Let's take the example again, an uncomplicated, very early term pregnancy in Texas where abortion is now outlawed. A woman wants to get this. What does she have to do and what legal gray areas does she have to go into? So the thing is, if you can get this prescription via telehealth, which is a new development, right? That didn't used to be allowed with Mifepristone. You can see your doctor over video and it's the kind of thing where what are they going to do? Like check your IP address. And if they did, even for like people who are not very technologically savvy like me, it's not that hard to kind of disguise where you're beaming in from. So you could get it there um, and then get the ma- the pill sent to some 
you know, center, like there are kind of websites that tell you where to send them that in some legal address, and then they can get forwarded on from there. Or in some states, you have situations where, you know, where a red state borders a blue one, you'll have kind of a a clinic or a hub like right over the border where you can go to get them. And tracking stuff like pills getting sent in the mail, Mm -hmm. that's nearly impossible, right? Right, And that's kind of why we've had some anti-abortion interest in the Comstock Act, which is this Victorian era law about not mailing obscenities. But even kind of anti-abortion judges, for the most part, have not really sunk their teeth into that yet. Just because, I mean, what a logistical nightmare would it be to start scanning everything that you know, seems pillish to make sure that there's no mifepristone in there. You know, terrorism dogs sniffing sniffing the mail. Let me ask you this. So, but it is the case that, okay, so let's go back to our example of the woman in Texas. She sets up a telehealth appointment with a doctor in Boston. They do the telehealth in Boston. The doctor writes a prescription. The Texas can still say, it is against the law for you to receive that drug in the state of Texas. Whether or not they can make much progress in enforcing it, Texas can do that even though you got a legal prescription from a doctor in Boston. Totally. Yep. Okay. But in practice, there, there are work, workarounds, to, workarounds to get around. Now, when did... I think a lot of us know that telehealth became a huge thing during the pandemic and has continued and on lots of fronts just changed how you know, the practice of medicine works. Is that part of this a pandemic related thing? Or is that a change in FDA regulations? Or is that one of the things that Biden did when he came into office? That was in 2021, a direct result of COVID. That's kind of how they explained that they were going to lift the REMS on that. So when, when we talk about when you mentioned before that it seems like, well, first of all, did just for us to understand how the Supreme Court operates, when you say that they didn't they didn't take up that counterclaim from the original litigants to basically give the court the opportunity to say, like, we agree with Kaczmarek in the first place, totally ban it, et cetera. Do they did the court need to do that? Can can they not uh I understand it's a it's a pretty clear indication, but can they not in theory, at least, kind of take this up. And once they take it up, they can kind of come up with any decision they want. Or what are the what are the technicalities of that? Yeah, so we don't get a lot of information when a court takes up a case. But we do, when applying for cert, um, which is asking the court to take up the case, they have the litigants present the questions that they want the court to address in making their decision. And we have a lot of instances where the court says, okay, we'll take question two, but we're not doing question one, that kind of thing. They kind of take what they think is the meat of the case and we'll deal with that and and not the rest. Um, so this is the, I mean, this is the kind of information that they would typically give us beforehand, but, you know, it's indicative. It, it's pretty clear that if they were Going into this with maximal bloodlust, they would have taken up that question as well. Now, when you mentioned before all these basically procedural irregularities that are in this case so far from the local uh, federal judge uh, up through the Fifth Circuit, it sounds like to the extent that that the court looks at those and says, this this is just all wrong. If they if they just said if they ruled all of that out, it would bring things back to the status quo ante, right? When it's basically exactly. pretty easily available through telehealth and so forth. Right. And the other indication that 
that might be the direction that they're intending to go is that they agreed to stay the lower court decisions until the Supreme Court either decided not to take the case up or decides it themselves, which left Mifepristone available as per usual for the duration of this case. Another kind of, and while that's for a long time status quo, right? Like judges mostly like to preserve how things are. That has not always been the case for this court. So the fact that they kind of let Mifepristone be available as usual, which Alito and Thomas vehemently dissented from. But another indication that perhaps they might be a little chastened from Dobbs, a little bit nervous to go like full maximal aggression on another abortion case, you know, with the caveat that these are this is tea leaf reading mostly, right? We we might get into the, the court and they decide, you know what, reimposing restrictions is not gonna be politically damaging. Maybe we can get away with that and squeak it in under the wire, even though there's no way that's true. You know, if they kind of reimpose these restrictions, you're gonna get wall-to-wall coverage of the Supreme Court is now making Mifepristone harder to obtain even in states where abortion is fully legal. The one thing I, and and I think this is, this shows up in the nature of news coverage, maybe uh, partly because, you know, there's still senior editors tend to be men more often, or also I think just as much because news tends to be written in blue states, you know, in Washington, D.C., in New York, in states that in states where abortion is is pretty freely uh, available or where you're close to a state where it, where it's pretty freely available but i think as you've explained that in practice in non-complicated abortions very early term which is the vast majority this is how you get an abortion so in a lot of ways this is more has more real world impact than a, a clinic closing and again it's not that that doesn't matter because there's all sorts of non you know complicated abortions, blah, 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 blah. But this isn't like a footnote. This is... Totally. Yeah. And the idea that, I mean, even in blue states, if you get rid of mifepristone or if you make it really hard to get, then you're going to be funneling more people into getting surgical abortions. And a lot of these clinics, particularly in states that are relative islands and have a lot of anti-abortion regimes around them, I mean, that's just going to kind of flood them with more appointments where you have to see the woman in person, right? And and give her the surgery, which, you know, old news, but it's it's always problematic whenever with something time sensitive like abortion, you put up these barriers that inevitably create delays because, you know, you're going to tip some women out of a window where it's legal in that state or, you know, it just into farther along in the pregnancy where everything is complicated. So la- last point on on this issue, since Dobbs, a number of these red states have, I mean, even though we say, you know, there's kind of no way for to really police if there's if there's a few tablets in a in a in a little package that a number of red states are trying, even if it's hard to find them, they can you can still there are other ways, you know, if you make the penalties high enough. Even if it's hard to get caught, that scares people. Or you can do other kinds of surveillance. What's happened on that front where, where, where states have said, all right, it's going to be hard, but we're going to give it a shot to, to try to make this not happen in our state? That's definitely still kind of in the spitballing phase. I think we're seeing from from anti-abortion activists and kind of, you know, the one off super crazy legislators kind of trying to introduce things like that. But I think if it does 
come to a showdown. It'll be between those types of people and then these blue states, which are increasingly painting their legislative efforts as kind of shield laws that say, you know, providers within our state are protected from the punishments of other states, whether that be, you know, seeing a woman from Texas or, um, you know, prescribing, treating her in any kind of way. And that's something that I think is kind of ripe for a huge legal showdown because the anti-abortion movement has also been really eager to do this kind of cross-jurisdictional policing to, you know, Texas is kind of countering that blue state thing with saying, well, if it's a Texan, our, our laws apply no matter where they go, which is just like a complete kind of misreading of the, the freedom to move between states, right? You don't, like states are free to kind of have different laws about different things. In some states, you can have a gun that you can't in other states. In some states, you can gamble in ways you can't in others. So it's kind of insane to say like, well, we own her. So it doesn't matter where she goes. She's never out of reach of our laws. But that's something that's becoming a pressure point. So I wouldn't be surprised if that kind of spills out into a greater um, legislative fistfight at some point. Wasn't there, is it Idaho or Wisconsin where they either have, I think they have passed it, but now it's in the courts, a law That's that right. basically says like, if you try to go to, you know, Wisconsin or, you know, Minnesota for an abortion, that is a crime in our state, yeah. um, which obviously there's all sorts of you know, we, we don't have time to get into the complexity of all the, the complexity and all the reasons that's wrong. I mean, as you said, the ability, it's foundational to the federal union that you can go between states and do whatever the hell you want. And as long as, well, ever, everybody gets the idea. So it, okay. So, so a, a big headline, but to the extent that we can infer probably points towards more good news than bad news in terms of the eventual you know, the decision over over what happens with this case. Now we have right. this other this other case in Texas where which is which is sort of like the you know, the horror story that abortion rights advocates always talk about. What what is going on with that case? So here we have Kate Cox, this thirty one year old woman in Texas, um, who is about a little over 20 weeks into her pregnancy, found out that her fetus has a fatal abnormality. You know, at best, it would live for like a few painful days and then die. So she wanted to get an abortion and she did what you're supposed to do under Texas law to get an abortion, which is she sued looking for kind of a temporary suspension of the law, arguing that her case puts her in the exemptions to Texas's abortion ban, which are either you're developing a life risking condition from the pregnancy or you're risking major permanent damage to you know some part of your body. And part of her argument is she's already had two children, both by C-section, which she is a patient that would have a pretty risky pregnancy at this point, no matter what. And her doctors have warned her that if she carries this non-viable pregnancy to term, that she could risk not being able to give birth again, which she wants to do. So a county judge said, yeah, sounds good to me, gave her a temporary restraining order, said you can get the abortion. And then Ken Paxton, the attorney general of Texas, who our listeners might also remember, is in 
some legal trouble, has been impeached by the super Republican Texas House for unrelated reasons. But he jumped in immediately and asked the Texas Supreme Court to intervene and say that she couldn't get her abortion and coupled that with a letter to the hospital system where her doctor, who kind of gave the professional opinion that she is at risk of these these physical ailments. He sent a letter to her hospital warning them that the statute of limitations on the abortion ban lasted longer than the temporary restraining order, warning them that nothing about this judge's order protects them from lawsuits from individuals or district or county attorneys, um, reminding them of the fines that come along with performing an illegal abortion, which is and is an that 100... because of that is that because of that law in Texas that like literally when you say individuals, you mean literally individuals, unrelated exactly. parties can just the, decide to file a lawsuit because of this exactly. law they have. Okay. Um, list out the penalties, which include a hundred thousand dollar civil fines for each abortion and on the criminal side that is a first or second degree felony, um, along with license suspension. So put all of that in the letter, mailed it off. The Supreme Court pauses the county court's decision, the temporary restraining order that would let her get the abortion on Friday. State, state Supreme Court. Correct. Yep. Yeah. On Friday, they do not work over the weekend, as far as we can tell. While this woman, Kate Cox, per her lawyers, has been in and out of four emergency rooms in the last few weeks and is in a kind of increasing physical peril. And then on Monday, they come down and they say she's not sick enough to qualify for these exceptions. She's not allowed to get an abortion. She should, if she is, get this, if she is able to be in court filing this lawsuit, she's not sick enough to qualify for the exceptions, which brings the question, who would ever be able to bring a lawsuit and get accepted then? So she left the state, got an abortion elsewhere. Her, her lawyers didn't tell us where. But I wrote this piece yesterday because part of this that was really kind of lingering in my brain is this idea, for good reason, abortion rights groups have kind of targeted abortion bans that don't have exceptions as proof of the cruelty and the brutality, right? Like, you know, so-and-so state doesn't let rape survivors or incest survivors get abortions just to kind of drive it home. And I think that's a I, I'm not quibbling with that strategy. I think it's it's proven itself effective to focus on the most the the inhumanity of abortion bans. But there's this idea that exemptions are meant to protect women like Kate Cox, right? Who is by every measure kind of a hard person for the anti-abortion movement to demonize. She's married. She has two children already. You know, she's white. She's trying to have a big family. That's kind of all these traditional conservative markers. But the point is that there's there's never been any meaningful differentiation between bands of, you know, young women seeking to end unwanted pregnancies or women who desperately want to have children finding out that there's some medical tragedy and that they have to abort the baby. There's never been any meaningful difference between how those abortions are banned. And that's been true even before Dobbs. You know, miscarriage care in a lot of ways is identical to abortion care. And that might be a different subset of women, but they struggle the same way uh, with, with bans and restrictions. And then kind of layered on top of that, this targeting of not letting women who are carrying non-viable 
pregnancies is a real movement within the anti-abortion camp right now. And uh, Jessica Valenti has written about this really well in her newsletter, but they're building up quietly this whole infrastructure, the way the anti-abortion movement does on both kind of a legal and like norms level of starting to infiltrate the medical world with the idea that no pregnancy is really non-viable, that you can't really trust the tests. They're not 100% accurate. And oh my God, what if they're wrong? This idea that there's a quote unquote industry, like this will sound familiar, an industry behind these fetal anomaly tests and they are profit driven and they have false positives and they don't care about women's health. And then kind of combining that with new legal language that is already popping up in legislation in in red states, which takes away, you know, fatal and non-viable and puts in potentially life-limiting diagnoses, spreading this idea that no, it's it's not it's not really hopeless. And then kind of coupling that with this infrastructure they already have of these crisis pregnancy centers, which kind of masquerade as non-ideological resources, but are all in the service of either forcing women to delay abortions until it's no longer possible or kind of pushing them into carrying the pregnancy to term. But using those to start pushing women towards this idea that giving birth to a dead or deformed or you know, agonized baby is somehow preferable to getting an abortion and creating this infrastructure where there are, you know, funerals and kind of hospice care and pushing this idea that a responsible parent who actually cares would want to have these last moments. And so it's this whole horrible network that is targeted to find women at the moment where they're hearing news that is devastating to most of them because this kind of we're it's getting closer but this fetal anomaly testing usually happens in the second trimester you've already been carrying the pregnancy for a matter of weeks so and because that they have these tentacles in all kinds of you know medical kind of auspices and because they get buckets and buckets of money often state money that goes to these kind of umbrella groups and then they can disperse it as they will they're already in these spaces where women are like getting this news and so it's this kind of two-pronged attack of this like emotional type thing and also a very legal and and legislative kind of flurry of disinformation that you can't really trust these fetal anomaly tests, even when you very much can, you know, we're getting better and better at finding these markers. And it's just, you know, and then you just get into the, the kind of nitty gritty horribleness of it. Like Jessica Valenti did this um, interview with one woman who really wanted to have a baby, found out it had a fetal anomaly. And then her anti-abortion doctor was telling her, that it was preferable for her to carry the pregnancy to term so she could hold the baby before it died, a baby that did not have a skull was going to be born without a head. I mean, it's monstrous, but it's it's this new kind of front of the anti-abortion movement. And this happens all the time. We see this Overton window moving constantly, that there used to be, it used to be a at least pretty widely accepted thing that you would have exceptions for, for rape and incest and fetal anomalies. Now we're getting a lot of states that have none of those exceptions, you know, and this has always been the movement, right? If you are an anti-abortion hardliner, you think abortion is murder. And as we've discussed on the show before, there's no kind of moral 
logic to the idea if that's what you believe that uh, pregnancy or incest exactly is right and you've and as has always been true in the anti-abortion movement you've got this kind of very loud knot of activists and then a much much greater kind of universe of lawmakers who might not have those extremist views themselves but feel that their political livelihoods kind of depend on catering to those views well, it's, I mean, it's generally been, you know, that there's that mantra, you know, rape, incest, health of the mother. And for most average people who are not committed ideologues, the straightforward idea there is that's a backstop. You know, if you re- if you really need it, if there's, you know, because I'll, a huge amount of this debate is carried on about, you know, a woman with an active sex life who wasn't scrupulous about her birth control and now she's pregnant and she just wants to be able to have access to abortion because she got pregnant because she was sleeping around or even even if we don't like you know really attach the you know sex shaming sort of swear words to it the idea that it's just a kind of a backup form of birth control that if it's really that you know for lack of a better word if it's if through no fault of her own so to speak Right, the mothers in this situation, but you know, you 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 were focusing on trying to efforts to try to either undermine the science or just say it doesn't matter if there's some catastrophic birth defect. Then there's the other issue, and obviously, often these issues in practice are conjoined. The 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 risk to the fetus is is all part of the same issue with the risk to the mother. But we've also seen all of these cases where it's you know, okay, it's not great for the mother, but are you sure she's going to die? You know, we're, we're, we're in practice and, you know, you're, you're up to the local DA and stuff. I mean, one thing that came to mind when you were describing the, the origins of this case is why would anybody go the legal route in that situation? You know, to, to, to uh, what is, you have to go to the local judge. I mean, I guess the, in theory, the way this should work is you retain a lawyer who does this, they go into the judge, show them the medical records and the judge just whatever's. But in that kind of climate, if you did have one of these cases, if you had any financial resources to make it possible, it seems like the obvious thing to do would be to fly somewhere if that were all, at all possible. Yeah, exactly. And It just the Texas Supreme Court in their ruling kind of revealed what a catch 22 it is because they kept saying this is a decision for medical experts, for the doctors. This is not for the courts to decide. And then they get to the inconvenience of her doctor saying, no, she definitely qualifies. And they just kind of nitpick it away. They say that she wasn't sure enough. And then you've also got the dual layer of pretending that doctors have any kind of agency here while hovering above their head is $100,000 fines and jail time and losing their ability to practice the profession. Even even that, I suspect in practice, that's the big one. I mean, obviously going to jail is a, a pretty big bummer, but but it's it's hard to jail someone. You've got to take them to trial and stuff, but you can, but for a doctor, that's their livelihood. You know, if they, if they lose their license, they can't practice medicine. So that's a huge, huge, I mean, it's probably a bigger deal than a $100,000 fine for a lot of doctors. Totally. And the problem is, I mean, what I kind of get at at my piece is this was the intention, right? Like this was the point of writing the exemptions in non-medical language that's all subjective. You know, it's like, when are you at risk of kind of 
a, a major impairment or it's just all this kind of stuff that doesn't comport with the reality of emergency medical care, which can be quickly shifting terrain, right? Someone could be doing well and then doing poorly very, very quickly. And you can't kind of predict when people go downhill. So then these doctors are in this position like hers was of saying, it's my good faith belief that she she qualifies for these exemptions based on what I've seen. And then the court is like, well, that doesn't meet the standard required by the exemptions. So you're asking doctors to speak in full certainty about things they can't possibly be certain about with this totally chilling atmosphere as, you know, a stick to kind of encourage them towards the direction of, well, we should let her get sicker. She's not bad enough yet. There's reasonable doubt here. Do we know why this case brought uh, Ken Paxton and the state Supreme Court in? I mean, Texas is a big state. Dobbs has been uh, in effect for, I guess, what, 18 months now? I don't know if I'm, if I have my math there right. Um, there must be many women in Texas who have found out about, you know, birth defects and, and, and so forth. Why is this, why are we hearing about this case? There must be other cases. Have they, have they not been hassled with or what's, what do we know about that? Well, I think part of it is the wherewithal it would take to, to file this lawsuit when you're in a situation like hers. I mean, like you said, if any of us were in these shoes, I think, you would try to arrange transportation to New Mexico or whatever. You wouldn't like put your faith in the Texas court. So I think part of it was her intention to make this a really big deal, which she did. Okay. She, she filed the lawsuit. She kind of, you know, her lawyers have been talking to a lot of media outlets. I think right, they okay. felt that this was a good, a good face for this kind right. of thing. Got it. Got um, it. Got it. Yeah. And then, but it's interesting because there have only been a few really big breakthrough cases, I think, since Dobbs that became nationwide news the way that hers has. And the other one that comes to my mind is the 10-year-old in Ohio Ohio, who had to go to another state. And I think that one was a little bit different because obviously it involved a child. Um, But, you know, you had the kind of state Republicans going after her doctor in that case and everything. And I think part of the salience is just the sheer brutality of it, right? Like these are cases that, like you said earlier, no normal person would see this and say they should have to bring those pregnancies to term. So I think they kind of do a good job of condensing a lot of the cruelty of abortion bans into one, you know, easily understood case. But it was kind of interesting to me that Paxton went so hard on this, you know, because sometimes on the pod, we talk about this idea that abortion is such a poison pill for Republicans. And you can see that in the fact that neither Ted Cruz nor John Cornyn will comment on this case in the Senate. You know, they're avoiding it with all their worth. But Paxton clearly is comfortable enough in his political security to be like, nah, fuck that. I'm going to make myself the number one villain in this story. Well, it is. I mean, we've seen even he had a lot of Republicans, at least in in the Texas State House, saying, you're a crook. We need to remove you. And he survived that. So, I mean, he can survive anything. And so clearly he doesn't give that kind of thing a second thought. More of this scintillating content after these messages. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, 
the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back to the show. All right, right. let's move on to happier news, uh, the possibility of, a, of another <laughs> Trump presidency. So what are, we, what, are we, what are we seeing on that front? We've seen a number of these, of these stories about you know, what he might do, what's coming. Yeah, that's what kind of why I wanted to talk about it. And, and you also had this piece you wrote about how it's easy for us to kind of fall into this thinking that the next election is make or break like that. That is the our date with destiny and kind of however, which way that goes, goes the nation and how in reality, this kind of thing is probably going to be ongoing for a while, especially while the Republican Party kind of more comfortably embraces their new authoritarian bent. Um, but what's gotten me thinking about this is we did just see a spate of these stories about how you know, the threat that Trump would pose, right? The And you had the dictator comment. And I think most of it was kind of spurred by these dismal polls for Joe Biden that keep showing Trump as the favorite. And it's interesting to me because while trying to figure out the more vibesy side of this election is this idea that you need something like this batch of polls to kind of poke outlets into doing pieces about how Trump is dangerous and bad again, and not just a sideshow to be ignored or, you know, a kind of a hyperbolic TV guy. So I don't know. I I don't even have good concrete thoughts about this. I was just interested in kind of teasing out that dynamic and the idea that perhaps that could be like a silver lining in all these bad polls that they create an incentive structure for news outlets to like focus more on how bad and scary that would be instead of just the horse racy component of Biden is old and people don't like that and people are in a bad mood and we're not exactly sure why. Yeah, I mean, I think I I mentioned this a a couple episodes back that if you look at all of the political players on the political playing board, none of them are acting as though it is a real possibility that Trump will be president a little more than one year from now. And they're, you know, they're Congress starts to think through, okay, here's how we're going to legislate this thing if he becomes president. There's all these things that there are all these actions that the other players take in those in those cases, and they're not taking them. And what you I think what we can infer from that is at least accurate in the sense that they don't think this is going to happen. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It may just be because they incorrectly think that or they don't want to consider the possibility. You know, in a lot of ways, I think Republican elected officials kind of like where they are now. Countries in a funk, presidents unpopular, they run one House of Congress. There's a decent, I mean, a pretty decent chance they'll take the Senate next year, although they could lose the House. They're kind of liking this. And Trump being in power is in some ways, you know, not not great for them. But 
and obviously Democrats have all sorts of reasons why they don't want to fate, don't want to think about that possibility. It's like too profoundly uh, upsetting to them. And some of that is just because it's still a year out. It's a long ways away. So I, I do, th- you know, on all of these, on the one hand, you have these bad polls and bad, you know, Biden running two, three, four points behind. That's that's bad enough. I mean, it's not like, you know, but I think you have those starting to sink in that this isn't like one bad CNN poll or something like that, that right now he is running behind. There's the polls are consistently showing that to the to whatever extent that means something a year out. They do they do show that. So that is making people think, Okay, what what would this be? What would happen? What would what would Trump be like? The other thing is just that we're getting closer to the campaign. We're, we're moving towards a campaign year. And that just moves the, the actual campaign more to the center. So both of these things are happening at once. And people start thinking about, okay, this is not just how much do I like Joe Biden, that we're going to be faced with this choice of these two people. And, and which am I going to pick? So both of those things are happening. You're starting to see you know, all of the people start to game out how a second Trump presidency would work. And, you know, it's kind of all familiar from what we, you know, what we experienced a few years ago, except for that fact that clearly it wouldn't be like the first time. I mean, it's really, it's remarkable if we go, if you go back in your head to 2017, when Trump came into office, he and his people clearly, just in the most fundamental sense, didn't know what was involved in being president, just in, 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 a, in a very basic sense. And the people who he nominated for the big positions were, you know, the, what was it, the ex-CEO of Exxon, a former general. He had, you know, Mitch McConnell's wife. He had the, the, the Vince McMahon's wife. I can't remember her first name. You know, pretty, I mean, not anybody who liberals and Democrats would like, but pretty standard order Republicans, mostly. You know, that, that guy, they had as Treasury Secretary. Clearly, it's totally different now. He, he understands how presidenting works. He's going to have a, a, a number of, you know, total nutballs who he, um, who he nominates. And, and just if you didn't read that post that Kate was referencing before, my point was not you know, it's not that big a deal. You know, it's not, it's not the end of the world. It's something different. It's that we tend to think, you know, who's winning team democracy or team authoritarianism. And a lot of us kind of thought, okay, Biden won, that's over. We made it right. Democracy triumphant. Well, clearly that didn't happen. Trump didn't go anywhere and his supporters didn't go anywhere. If anything, the party's become more Trumpian. And what we've seen, like th- this was when I wrote this, it, it was triggered by, I got an email from a reader and I get these th- an e- emails like this all the time. Like, you know, authoritarianism is on the march and we're losing. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe Biden wins, but we're losing. The big story is we are losing and not just we're losing here in the United States. 
it's across the world. You know, you just had this guy elected down in Argentina and everything. And, and maybe we are losing. Maybe that is where things are going. But I think if you look, it's a little different from that, that we are moving into this political era where instead of left and right parties, you have civic democracy parties and right-wing populist authoritarian parties. And, you know, you can certainly, we, we have that now in the United States. You can sort of see that in France in as much as the traditional left and right have kind of collapsed and you have a kind of right-leaning civic democratic party force with the incumbent president, uh, Macron, and you have the National Front, or they've changed their name. But that's kind of, those are the two groups that can win elections now in France. You also have what just happened in Poland, um, I guess it's a few weeks ago now. You had, uh, I believe it's called the Law and Justice Party that came to power in Poland in 2015. Traditionalist, traditionalist, anti-immigrant, Catholic party, heavily authoritarian, uh, was in power in Poland for eight years and had been slowly kind of reconstructing the Polish state around authoritarian nationalism. And a coalition, a sort of a civic democratic coalition, finally beat them a couple weeks ago. We have the case in Brazil with, you know, Trump's uh, BFF, uh, Bolsonaro, right? And you had Lula he he won there. They had their own kind of Jan sixth, a kind of a I mean surprising. I mean almost like they were they're trying to do an homage to January sixth or something. A kind of a, a failed takeover the Capitol building coup down there. So I think, and and to the extent that that is right, obviously it's not just two new parties or two functionally different parties that are kind of left and right, but with this other with this other dimension to it. It's not just that because one of those two parties doesn't believe in elections. Or rather they don't they don't they only care about winning the election, not whether it was a free and fair election or even if there's another election afterwards. So that's not that's not really a functioning two party system. On the other hand, it's not workable to think, well, you know, democracy is only can only survive as long as Joe Biden, Kamala Harris keep winning elections because it doesn't work that way. No one wins every election. So it's not kind of everything's fine. It's that we have a, an authoritarian party in this country and they're going to win an election at some point. And we kind of have to accept that not do everything in our power to avoid it, but we've got to have a plan for what we do when that happens. Because again, no party wins every single time. That's just not not realistic. And so I do think we're in this, sorry for the monologue, I, you know, in this extended period where it's not, it's not really left and right parties. It's, it's civic democratic and authoritarian nationalist parties. And you're going to have some going back and forth. And that's that's uh, scary because it is scary. But we also have to have a plan when that happens to make sure there's going to be another election, you know, afterwards. Yeah. I mean, I guess the concern is how do you make sure of that? You know, I mean, last time. <laughs> not yeah, easily. Yeah, when I mean, not, when not Trump easily, tried yeah. to 
deny the 2021. I mean, it, it really came down to kind of a handful of old school Republicans who who wouldn't do it. I think that plus the fact, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. still I don't think it's talked about enough, but the fact that he would have had to swing like four or five states that just made it a, a quite a different equation than if he had lost by, you know, 20,000 states and 20,000 votes in Wisconsin or something. Um, right. But right. I mean, that was just kind of like happenstance, right? I mean, how do you ensure that other than, I guess, kind of pushing Democrats just to, I think they've already started to pay more attention, but to, to pay attention to these kind of critical state level positions that end up having huge sway over certifying election results. Yeah. I mean, when I say like you have to have a plan to make sure there's another election, I mean, <laughs> you know, no, no plan makes first contact with the enemy, as they say, as they say in the army. I mean, I'm not, maybe you can't, maybe there won't be another election, but that we need to be thinking about being in that situation and what are, what levers and what powers we will have to do that. I'm not saying it's easy, it may not be possible, but we will find ourselves in that situation. And, and I think one of the one of the possibly positive things is the, you know, that often very annoying part of the structure of the U.S. government, which is federalism and the, and the, and the, the dispersal of power, that the federal government doesn't run the elections. It, different parts of it have a lot of say over the elections. Federal courts have a lot of say, but elections are run by state governments and different parts of state governments. So who is running the elections in a state government? That is really important, A. Um, that's why gerrymandering at the state level is not a good thing. That That's a problem. That makes, you know, that, that everything we've seen in, in Wisconsin, it makes it a good thing that Democrats took control of the state Supreme Court. That's a big deal. That's a big, big deal. Um, for the moment, you have a Democratic governor in Wisconsin. So all of these things play out. Obviously, very bad news is that we have a very right-wing Supreme Court. And I think it's probably fair to say that they will side with Republicans on any reasonable question of electoral jurisprudence. When it really is a close call, they're going to give it to the Republicans. The question is, when it's not a close call, are they also going to give it to Republicans? So all of these things are, and again, it's not, this is not, don't worry, it'll it'll be fine. It, it's that, you know, more than anything, history goes on, even though the really bad thing happens. There's still, there's still something happening the, happening the next day. And you got to think through how you're going to deal with that next day thing, even if that next day situation, you know, hi- history doesn't end. And, you know, a lot of our dialogue trying to kind of raise the stakes and get people to understand the stakes, which is critical. We can't lose sight of the fact that there is always a next, you know, there's a next day thing. There right. always is. Okay. Yeah. Have we made everybody mm, feel good? Cheerful one. Is everybody pumped? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're on your commute. You're in your you're in your subway car. So you're you're all set for the activities of the day. Uh, let me remind you one other thing. You know, a lot of you who listen to the podcast are TPM members, your subscribers, and that's great. We really appreciate it. A lot of you are not, and that is you know that's awesome. It's a, it's a free podcast, and we love having you here. But if you do enjoy it, we'd like you to consider becoming a member. 
And actually right now, and when you become a member, you know, you only, you know, kind of half kidding here, you can listen to the podcast without a guilt, guilty conscience, but you also get, you know, you get access to everything, everything we publish on the website, you get fewer ads on the, on the website. You can also just get an ad free subscription, which you, in which case you have no ads ever on the website. But right now, uh, you know, we're, we're a little less, we're about 11 months out from the 2024 election and we're doing this uh, special discount. If you subscribe now, you can get 30% off, which is a huge discount. And so if you if you get in, it's for annual memberships. If you get an annual membership now, that will take you right through the 2024 election. So it's a great time to do it. If you'd like to join us, you can go, just go on the web, go to our website, talkingpointsmemo.com. If you go there, you'll, you know, an ad will pop up like at the bottom of the screen, tell you about the offer. Just click there. It's really easy to sign up and we really appreciate it. It helps us, makes possible for us to do what we do. This podcast, the fact that Kate and I can do this every week and and uh, with Kate's new podcast, Belaboring the Point, where she talks to news, newsmakers and policy analysts and, and so forth, kind of a different, different kind of podcast. You know, Kate and I on the weekly show are kind of talking about the news of the week and her new show is is you know digging into a particular topic, often one that is hard to get into you know, in the day by day news cycle. So the fact that we're able to publish these podcasts is because of our members. So if you'd like to join us, please do that. Just go to talkingpointsmemo.com. Ad will pop up. It'll be really easy to sign up and we will really appreciate it. And I guess that is uh, all we've got for this week. Okay. See you next week. All right. See you then. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. Mm-hmm.